everybody welcome back to a thousand cuts a bsa podcast i'm your host demetrius here with my comrades and co-hosts lacase and glenn y'all say what's up hey everybody hey what up little folks all right all right we are glad to be back with y'all again this is going to be a bit of a looser episode a different sort of episode we're going to be very news heavy on this episode we're going to be talking we're going to be diving in depth about the struggles in haiti right now and we're also going to be connecting that to and also talking about some more ecological issues as well towards the end of the episode. So, Comrade LaCase, can you go ahead and give us a rundown about what's happening with Haiti as of late and how it really is, as you say, a repeated historical pattern that the Haitian people have been experiencing since they, frankly, freed themselves from white rule long ago? Yeah, well... Thank you, Demetrius. And like Demetrius said, we're going to dive into what's going on right now in Haiti and also the history and how this has been repeating itself for generations, for centuries on that part of the island. So just to catch everyone up to speed, July 7th of this year, the president of Haiti was assassinated in his private residence. And they have now instated a new interim president and they're making connections with this assassination to outside governments, primarily the United States, with a lot of the assassins coming from U.S. military training. So that's what happened. But I want to back up to essentially the beginning of that island's history as we know it to show how these events have repeated themselves time and time again and how in the struggle to, as Demetrius said, free themselves from white rule and subjugation, the people of Haiti have found essentially their knees cut out from under them. So first and foremost, I have two notes here that I want to share. First, I want to give a content warning. We're going to be talking about extreme acts of violence, racial, sexual, and physical violence. And then another note is the way that I'm going to refer to Haiti. First, I'll refer to it as the island of Haiti, as it was called by the Taino people. Then it will become the island of Hispaniola for the name it was referred to during Spanish rule. And then finally, we'll go into San Domingue. And then finally, it became Haiti. So let's begin with that initial moment of contact between the Spanish and the Taino people on the island of Haiti. So the Taino people originally referred to it as the island of Haiti, which meant the land of high mountains for its truly breathtaking mountainous landscapes. The entire island was stolen by the Spanish under the direction of Christopher Columbus in 1492 and renamed Hispaniola. In a reign of terror that spanned the entire Caribbean, indigenous people were forced into enslavement, and that included the procurement of gold. Anyone who did not present enough gold had their hands cut off. Those who attempted to flee were hunted down. And women and children were systemically sexually abused. And boatloads of people were sent to Europe for display and further torture. Michel de Cuneo, who was present for the second voyage to the island of Hispaniola, described a woman that was, quote unquote, gifted to him by Christopher Columbus himself in his journal. I'm going to read a quick excerpt from his journal that was included in Lawrence Bergen's biography of Columbus. 
titled Columbus, The Four Voyages. Before I read, I do want to offer a content warning for sexual violence. This is truly, truly vile. So here's what Cuneo wrote. While I was in the boat, I captured a very beautiful woman whom the Lord Admiral Columbus gave to me. When I had taken her to my cabin, she was naked, as was their custom. I was filled with a desire to take my pleasure with her and attempted to satisfy my desire. She was unwilling and so treated me with her nails that I wished I had never begun. I then took a piece of rope and whipped her soundly. And she let forth such incredible screams that would not have believed your ears. Eventually, we came to such terms, I assure you, that you would have thought she had been brought up in a school for whores, end quote. The Spanish ruled Hispaniola from 1492 to 1625. In two years, the population of the island was reduced from 250,000 to 125,000. By 1550, that number was only 500. So again... From 1492 to 1550, the population of the island of Haiti was reduced from around 250,000 people to 500. The Spanish realized they would need a new workforce and turned to the mainland of Central and South America, where the numbers were more bountiful. So let's get into the next bit of history, the slave trade, transatlantic slave trade. Facing dwindling numbers as a result of murder, disease, and mass suicides, the occupying forces had to turn to outside options to continue their destruction of the island. Hispaniola had been so debilitated by the plundering that it was soon reduced to a trading outpost as the Spanish focused their efforts on mainland Central and South America, which led to raids by pirates and aggression from the French and English. To counteract the potential loss, they entered into the Treaty of Rizwick in 1697, which divided the island into two parts, St. Domingue for France and the Dominican Republic for Spain. This treaty brought an end to the Nine Years' War between France and the alliance of England, Spain, the Dutch Republic, and Austria. The French left at the opportunity to further pillage their portion of the resource-rich island and created plantations where sugarcane and coffee were grown and exported. The island was the empire's most profitable quote-unquote possession. They imported enslaved Africans from their colonies on the continent at such a rate that French occupiers were soon outnumbered by enslaved peoples by 10 to 1. To maintain order, the French enacted the Code Noir, or slave codes, to subjugate their captives. Another content warning for torture here. Those who survived smallpox and typhoid fever faced potentially losing an ear, mutilation, branding, imprisonment, and execution for attempting to flee, for disappearing, and then being found or marrying without permission, for deciding to terminate a pregnancy to avoid bringing a child into enslavement, and other transgressions. The code also dictated how the lineage of a child would determine their slave status. The revolt for freedom among the enslaved and free people of color on the island against the French lasted from 1791 to 1804. This was a strategic choice to have it occur at this point in history. The French had recently fought their own revolution in 1789 and soon were at war with literally every kingdom in Europe at the time. First came the War of the First Coalition, which lasted from 1792 to 1797 and pitted France against the army of Condé, the Dutch Republic, Great Britain, the Holy Roman Empire, Naples, Portugal, Prussia, Sardinia, Spain, and eventually more smaller duchies and kingdoms. They each wanted a piece of the fallen monarchy and the burgeoning republic. Meanwhile, where they still outnumbered their white captives, the black population of St. Domingue struck when the iron was hot. While fighting to maintain control, the French were in constant state of warfare in Europe and around the globe. 
which the leaders of what we now call the Haitian Revolution capitalized on. In 1790, a militia force led by Vincent Oguet, a mixed-race noble of the island, fought against the white settlers. Oguet was captured, tortured, and executed. The skirmish, however, inspired organization. In 1791, Toussaint Louverture took the north of the island to establish a fighting force. And then in 1792, slavery was successfully abolished on that part of the island. However, Overture pledged allegiance to France and fought against the English and Spanish, who attempted to conquer their side of the island. Another insurgency against the French took place from 1799 to 1800. In 1802, Napoleon Bonaparte sent an army of 20,000 to quell the descent. Yellow fever swept through the ranks, putting an end to the fighting. However, Toussaint Louverture was captured and sent to France, where he too died in 1803. The battle for independence continued under Alexandre Pétion, Henri Christophe, and Jean-Jacques Dessalines until the defeat of the French at the Battle of Vertiere in 1803. Haiti is to this day the only nation to gain its independence through a slave revolt. So now the current history. Despite winning against the French, the people of Haiti were forced into debt by Western nations. The United States, fearful the slave revolt would inspire other attempts, ceased to aid the island. The French blocked trade from Haiti, which eventually led to desperation. So in 1825, the French demanded compensation for the loss of the colony, or they would obliterate the struggling, still brand new, independent nation. The amount they wanted? 150 million francs. The debt was eventually reduced to 90 million francs, which today would be over $20 billion. The Haitian government attempted to unify the island and expel the Spanish from the Dominican Republic, but were unsuccessful. From the 19th century and into the 20th century, Haiti fought against the influence of the U.S., Germany, and other countries with both the U.S. and Germany steering leadership of the island. In 1914, the U.S. successfully seized control of the nation and stole $500,000 from the country. From 1915 to 1934, the U.S. occupied Haiti following the assassination of President Jean Vilbrun Guillaume Sam. Only in power from February of 1915 to July of 1915, Sam's death was precipitated by his execution of 167 political prisoners, including the previous president. Sam had led the ousting of the previous president. To avoid the instating of Dr. Rosalvo Bobo, the leader of the revolt against Sam's regime, who was opposed to trade with the United States, Woodrow Wilson dispatched the American Navy to Haiti. After quelling the revolt, a new constitution was instated, which was written by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, which allowed foreign land ownership in Haiti. So Charlemagne Peralte led armed resistance against the U.S., but was captured in 1919 and executed. His body was put on display to quell any further unrest. By 1921, it was reported that upwards of 2,250 Haitians had been murdered. Another report to the Secretary of the Navy in the United States lists the number much higher at 3,250. Following the departure of the U.S. in 1934, Haitians were targeted by the Dominican Republic under Rafael Trujillo, who ordered the massacre of Haitians living on the Dominican Republic side of the island, known as the Parsley Massacre. Then, from 1957 to 1986, the Duvalier dynasty ruled the nation. Dr. Francois Duvalier became president in 1957. His private police force, known as the Bogeymen, maintained order through terror. Duvalier proclaimed himself president for life, and his son, Jean-Claude Duvalier, uh, succeeded him in 71 and ruled until 1986. 
Revolts and false elections followed until the 1991 military coup d'etat led by Raul Cedras in opposition to the election of Jean-Bertrand Aristides, who ran on the promise of reform. In 1994, the U.S. reinstated Aristides under the condition that he implement, quote-unquote, free market reforms, end quote, which served the foreign power rather than the people. Aristide was able to maintain power until 2004 when an anti-Aristide revolt began and forced him into exile via kidnapping. His family and bodyguard reported that the men who took him wore U.S. Special Forces uniforms. Then, in 2004, the tropical storm Jean hit, killing 3,006 people. In 2010, as we, I'm sure most of us remember, the island was struck by a seven-magnitude earthquake, leaving up to 1.6 million people homeless and killing upwards of 300,000, made worse by an outbreak of cholera. Now, the cholera outbreak was triggered by the waste of the UN station, which was bled into the Artibonite River. So then in 2010, general elections resulted in the instatement of Michel Martelli. However, Martelli stepped down in 2016 due to opposition allegations of electoral fraud. That's where we get to Moise. Jovenel Moise was elected and sworn in in 2017. He refused to step down in February of 2021. And after protests from 2018 to today, Moise was assassinated on July 7th in his home, and his wife was also severely wounded. Once again, the acting Haitian president has requested the U.S. to step in to, quote, help in stabilization, end quote. Now, as for the men who raided Moise's residence, a report from The Intercept reveals the force was primarily ex-Columbian soldiers trained by U.S. military, some as recently as 2015. In fact, only two of the 28 men who raided the home were of Haitian descent, and those two were U.S. citizens. Haitian police also arrested Christian Emmanuel Sanon, a 63-year-old Florida resident who arrived in Haiti by private jet, and now they claim he was a part of the plot. A report from the LA Times has named CTU Security, a Miami-based security company owned by Antonio Intriago, as the firm that sent the men to assassinate Moise. Colombian officials have identified Joseph Felix Badio as a former Haitian intelligence official and the one who ordered the assassination, which was allegedly supposed to be an arrest. Colombian officials have not revealed the source of the information. Now, that's what I've got for the background and for what has been going on currently in Haiti. So I'll turn it over to Demetrius and Glenn. Wow, man. Thank you. Thank you so much, LaCase, for that rundown, that brief rundown of the history of Haiti. We will probably be doing more in-depth episodes on the history of the Haitian Revolution as we continue our, our research, because this is too important of an event in a nation for us to pass up. But first, I actually want to turn it back to Glenn and LaCase and just y'all give me our thoughts on how y'all been feeling about the situation thus far in these reoccurring historical patterns of just, you know, of just imperialism. What do y'all think? I mean, yeah, it's definitely in a lot of ways, there's a lot of, I guess you could say, like familiar elements to it. Like you said, there's a lot of things that seem to be like in a way repeating in history, but at the same time, it's always new, of course, and the dynamics of it are forever changing. And also just the ways in which they engage with these geopolitics is always, it's a process for them, right? Like they just refine it and refine it. I think it's the way LaCase broke it down. The history of it is a way of piecing together that refinement. You can see how the process from the original colonization to now, and even the effects of that on the physical landscape of Haiti, the way that it's completely stripped of resources and stuff, uh, as the case was mentioning before we got on the show, 
there's so many different historical parallels, but all of those things are also being exacerbated by the situation that we're in now, right? The world, the condition of the planet and the way that the U.S. and other nations engage with regions in the global south and the Caribbean and stuff like that. Yeah, they definitely treat these regions like the whole earth is in a holistic place with people all over that, you know, should have autonomy and the ability to manage where they live and have a degree of self-governance is, yeah, definitely they treat it like it's a playground, like it's a backyard that they could just escape and landscape and contort to their ideals. And this includes the people who inhabit that space. And it's definitely, as always, it's jarring, like hearing the details and the stories it definitely winds you up and makes you realize that there's a lot of different ways in which oppression has been basically mastered as a, a practice to, at least for a series of generations, supremacy over the land and populations. But, you know, all of these things have feedback loops that get fed into. And as far as the environment goes, you see that ecologically, the collapse. But then as far as social goals, you have revolutions that pop off. And while they're not always the most organic forms, they could still have really incredible impacts. And sometimes the people involved can begin to find a way to move in an organic way where they become that movement and they free themselves as, as the people of Haiti did at one point. And it seems that these cards are on the table for how things may play out in this case as well. Yeah, I, I totally agree, Glenn. It especially, you know, hearing you say that feedback loop piece, what was so striking to me doing this research and having a more cursory understanding of the situation in Haiti, you know, really no more than anyone else. What really struck me was the almost like rinse and repeat. And you're so right that it is like a refinement of destabilization. It's you destabilize, you then can seize control, you can strip them of their resources until they fight back they oust you and then you wait and bide your time and you come back in. Each Western empire that set foot on Haiti had a very singular mission and that was to take as much as they could from this tiny piece of an island. So it was very jarring. And especially as we talk about the environment, as we talk about our concerns with the environment, seeing like a picture of the border between Haiti and the Dominican Republic and Haiti looks like it has been just completely stripped while the Dominican Republic is lush and green learning from a trip to Haiti that there are attempts to privatize beaches for cruise ships. It's indicative of what we are going to face globally. And I think that's really interesting. Haiti has always been at the forefront of a lot of these movements, whether it was getting independence from France or being a founding country in the United Nations, and now seeing how it is just being completely stripped. And we're seeing other places like the Amazon and really our global environment being stripped. It's just like everything starts at Haiti. So yeah, this was very hard to research and reading that back to you all. I apologize <laughs> for the weight of it, but I think it's really important that we acknowledge. I mean, I think a lot of us love to go like, oh, you know, revolution, like Haiti. We, all, we look at Haiti as just a, I think, almost abstract concept and we get really hype about freedom, but then we look at the cost. You know, I'm not saying that it's wrong to fight for freedom, but I'm saying we have to look at the entire picture and what price the people of Haiti are still paying. They're still in debt by billions of dollars, you know, and they are still being stripped by the United States and other countries. France continuously refuses to forgive the debt. So yeah, those were my thoughts after having done this and being able to sit with it. So I'm interested in hearing what you think, Demetrius. Yeah, no, those are great perspectives. Absolutely. Yeah. Haiti, 
I think you're so right, LaCase, is that a lot of people on the left in general can really fetishize and romanticize revolution and what it looks like and the outcomes of revolution. Because I know for me, I have a a friend of mine whose uh, father, he's Nicaraguan, he's Nicaragüense, but his father was a Sandinista rebel. And a lot of the Western left, a lot, especially a lot of the American left, we fetishize those sort of revolutions and stuff like that in Latin America. You see, currently we're seeing a lot of that around Cuba and Castro and his, you know, state capitalist regime as we would see it. And, but at the same time, we support the struggles of the Cuban people on the ground, not the power of the Cuban government and its figureheads. But anyway, you see a lot of that fetishizing, but with the Sandinista revolts and uprising, my friend's father showed me so much of the sadness, of the pain, of the hurt, of the fear that was around it, and, and of some, you know, really revealed to us some of the tragic outcomes of pushing back in a revolutionary sense. And of course, I, I do believe that the Sandinistas of the time were they were Marxist-Leninists as, as well. But, but yeah, Haiti has been paying the price ever since they have liberated themselves from white domination. They were fucked from that very moment. And since they lost, I guess you could say, the physical battle, the physical warfare, these white world powers, as I see them, now they're trying to, they're hitting them with economic warfare, sacking them with debt, you know, similar to sanctions and shit like that. And of course, the U.S., you know, going in and, you know, doing what they always do, doing regime change, assassinating people, setting up right wing authoritarian dictatorships because it will further, quote unquote, free market, brutal, extractive capitalist exploits in the country and leading to a a vicious, just destroying the landscape and impoverishing people's lives further. Right. And those are the natural, as we will get into a little bit with the episode that we're talking about, I mean, these are the natural ecological disaster is just a natural byproduct of capitalist accumulation, right? You have a bunch of firms and businesses and corporations that must compete with one another in the market. So they have to outproduce one another. So it's going to lead to things like urbanization, deforestation. You have food producer corporations that essentially farmers have to work for and engage in destructive farming practices that fuck up the land and shit like that, poisoning air, poisoning waterways, all of these things in order for these firms and these companies to continue to expand and to grow or else they will die. It has nothing to do with these, you know, companies, organizations necessarily being evil in that sort of moralistic sense, even though I do consider capitalism evil, but it's just how they have to function in order to survive, right? And so what we see with Haiti is essentially what Naomi Klein calls disaster capitalism, right? Some fuck shit goes on in the country and all sorts of disasters and insanity. And, you know, the free marketeers, the free market partisans swoop in to basically exploit the fucking situation. And, you know, it's just a sad state of affairs. And so many revolutionaries, including black revolutionaries, are inspired by the history of Haiti. But look, there is always a price to pay for freedom in the world of domination and and authority. You know, there are serious costs, which could be all sorts of things. People fucking dying, the legacy of the revolution constantly being intervened with and compromised, as we see with the legacy of Haiti. And it's just sad. Haiti, to me, proves is one of the many examples that to me that proves the reality of white supremacy historically. Of the global white supremacist project, you know, these were slaves who fought off multiple armies from various nations in order to have access to their birthright as human beings to freedom and liberty, 
to decide their own collective fate. And they're getting shitted on, have been shitted on for centuries just for trying to get access to that birthright. It's ridiculous. They've been being brutalized for it ever since. So Haiti is an example to me of just why whenever I hear some fucking moron talk about white supremacy or racism isn't really real, you know, all this other shit, I'm just like, dude, fuck off. Haiti looks the way that it does. It exists the way that it does because of that shit. You know, it's funny. All of these people can shit on Haiti or Haiti is demonized for trying to free themselves. But, you know, of course, the American Revolution is always just the most glorious thing that's ever fucking happened, even though it's literally a people group freeing themselves. Although, I mean, there are differences, of course, but it is still a people group freeing themselves of a hegemonic power in the world and an authority that they believe is totally unjustified in its existence. Freeing themselves of that again, to decide for themselves what their fate and their destiny should be. And in this case, being brutalized for it constantly. So I don't know. Sorry to get on that rant. It's just fucked, you know? It's just fucked. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think something else that really struck me was how patient and cunning these Western powers were. Like, you think the Haitians won. The leaders were savvy enough to recognize what was going on in Europe. Because a lot of the leaders we're free people of color. You know, they have access to information. They know what's going on with the French. They bide their time and then they strike so they can lead their people to freedom, right? And the French don't immediately request the payment of a debt. They wait until 1825. They wait until this point when systemically Haiti has been shut out of trade. Other nations force them into isolation. And then the French appear with warships, I left that part out, they appear with warships and demand essentially reparations for losing the colony. And then then we have the United States and Germany and other countries waiting for more destabilization in that area and striking. And we are constantly seeing the cycle of leaders being instated, waiting for there to be unrest. They're assassinated or they're removed. The U.S. comes in again. You know, it's constant. I just couldn't stop thinking about the way that capitalism and white supremacy work you know, you try to do things in good faith, and then you are hindered from moving forward. It was just it's really striking to me how just vile and cunning the process was. And when you see the people of Haiti who, like you said, are just trying to seize their birthright, and it's just, it, it still has not happened. You know, if you really think about it, they are still subjugated. They're still not totally free. So yeah, I mean, I'm sure from looking at this, we, we can all divine what happens next on the island. And it, it really, I really hope everyone thinks about the, the fact that their constitution was written by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, not a Haitian, not their own government. The U.S. forced them to adopt a constitution written by the United States. You know, so as we work, we have to remember that you cannot work with these organizations in good faith because they will never work with you in good faith. It's a constant, it's a constant battle. If you open up your space to organizations and peoples who are, in my opinion, fundamentally, you know, misaligned with what you're trying to do. And I think we were kind of talking about that beforehand, but what does that really look like? We talk about working across organizations, but what does that really look like? I don't know. I'm interested in hearing what you two think about that. If we, you know, as members of the BSA can work across different organizations where maybe there are things that we aren't aligned in. Yeah, that's definitely something to, you know, always consider and reevaluate, right? Like, 
in our instance, there's always a long process of trust building, right? We have to figure out who we can actually align with. Who shares our values and principles is always a key benchmark of trying to figure out if people can be in alignment, right? Because if you can't even identify some core values that we all identify as necessity to really be able to establish the world that we want to live in, which is a free society, a society where people are autonomous and able to engage with their material world, unlike any way anyone can engage with it today. Like there's no barriers to entry. There's tons of ways to make the world more accessible to people. These are the things that we are trying to achieve. But some people may even say that they are aiming for those things, but they may have very authoritarian ways they want to try to achieve those goals. And when you do something like that, where you're basically saying you're going to create this oppressive structure that's only pointed towards one subgroup of people, wherever that be, you aiming to try to overthrow the elite class and install your dictatorship of the proletariat, right? Like that shit ain't gonna really fly because you're still talking about installing a new managerial class, right? So it's really important to make sure that the folks you're organizing when aren't just trying to become the new managers of the system. We're trying to overthrow this whole fucking system and build new systems that actually engage with people in a way where their needs are being met. And beyond just your needs, you have the agency to be able to move in society and really develop your full potential as a human being on this planet yeah it just i don't know what a real answer that would be but i just it just makes me wish that there was some sort of pan-african network some sort of powerful global international pan-african network where you know that could be of some sort of political help to nations like haiti as they struggle again with dealing with the interventions and just the disruptions and the destabilization that comes from white Western powers. That's what it makes me wish there was, you know what I mean? And that's something that I hope our organization can be or be a part of because it's been high time for black people to defend black people's shit, you know, period. And not only to defend our shit, but to help build our shit. That's what it makes me wish that we could have a real powerful, serious, threatening global international pan-African network of just Black or African societies that are connected, that can really support one another as we try to build a new world out of the shell of the old. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's just the first thing that came to my mind, you know? Yeah, definitely. I agree with what you're getting at there. Because, yeah, it's basically how we have to engage with it, really going to be able to create that network you're talking about, right? Like it's going to be, well, one is going to have some clandestine elements to it, obviously, because this current system doesn't want to see anyone doing anything that is counterproductive to what their aims is. They don't want people to become autonomous, people to be able to self-manage themselves, self-govern themselves in a way that makes them look inferior because they weren't able to meet people's needs because that's not their end goal. They, they're not about meeting needs. They're about supplanting and having subservient populations so that they can extract as much from the population itself as well as the resources of the, the world we live in. But yeah, did you have anything else you want to add to that case? Because I was thinking maybe I can transition into the environmental stuff from here. No, I think you both hit the nail on the head. Let's go ahead and transition. No doubt. And to go back into the point that I was talking about with the feedback loops, I think in a lot of ways, the stripping of Haiti and just the stripping of the world in general, the extractive practice that we engage with for capitalism to be able to continue to persist is having its, you know, taking its toll on the world globally through climate change, as we all know. And even in the countries, as mentioned, like Germany and such that have 
reap the most benefit from these extractive practices are now also beginning to pay a toll for what they've exacted on the world is beginning to come back in an exchange rate that unfortunately is not monetary. It's one that is based on lives and human well-being. So on that note, I'm going to go into the flooding that occurred in Europe recently. So the death toll from flooding in Western Europe climbed above 180 today on Sunday, or is it July 18th, after rescue workers dug deeper into debris left by receding waters. Heavy rain fueled new floods in southeastern Germany and Austria, though not on the scale of last week's devastating onslaught. The toll from the hard-hit Arweiler area, and I may be saying some of these German cities' names incorrectly, so bear with me, of western Germany's Rhineland-Palatinate state at more than 110, and said they feared the number may still rise. In neighboring North Rhine-Westphalia state, Germany's most populous, 46 people were confirmed dead, including four firefighters, and Belgium has confirmed 27 casualties. Although rain has stopped in the worst affected areas of Germany, Belgium, and the Netherlands, storms and downpours have persisted in other parts of Western and Central Europe. There was flooding Saturday night in the German-Czech border area, across the country from where last week's floods hit, and in Germany's southeastern corner and over the border of Austria. About 130 people were evacuated from their homes in Germany's Berchtesgaden area after the Ack River swell, or Ake River, at least one person was killed. The railway line to Berchtesgaden was closed. A flash flood swept through the nearby Austrian town of Helene late Saturday, but there were no reports of casualties. Further west, parts of the town of Kustein were flooded. Heavy rain and storms caused serious damage in several parts of Austria. Climate scientists say the link between extreme weather and global warming is unmistakable and the urgency to do something about the climate change is undeniable. Climate scientists point toward two specific things that have contributed to this week's calamity in Europe. First, with every 1 degree Celsius, 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit, rise in temperatures, the air can take in 7% more humidity. It can hold the water longer, leading to drought, but it also leads to an increase in dense massive rainfall once it releases it. Another defining factor is the tendency for storms to hover over one place for far longer than usual, thus dumping increasing amounts of rain on a smaller patch of the world. Scientists say warming is a contributing factor here, too. A jet stream of high winds 6 miles, nearly 10 kilometers high, helps determine the weather over Europe and is fed by temperature differences between the tropics and the Arctic. Yet, as Europe warms with Scandinavia currently experiencing an unusual heat wave, the jet stream is weakened, causing its meandering course to stop. Sometimes for days, such a phenomenon was visible in Canada, too, where it helped cause a heat dome in which temperatures rose to 50 degrees Celsius, 122 Fahrenheit. Even if greenhouse gas emissions are drastically curved in the coming decades, the amount of carbon dioxide and other planet heating gases already in the atmosphere means extreme weather is going to become more likely. And experts say that such a phenomenon will hit those areas that are unprepared for particularly hard, of course. So I say all that to also link to the fact that recently here in my own locale in Detroit, we've had really bad flooding twice now in a matter of several weeks. Once with it being so bad that I-94 and I-75, as well as several other freeway systems here, were flooded to the point that I think it was something like 300 cars had to be left behind and were damaged. Oh no, I think it was like more than 300, it was like 350. And it's something of like, somewhere like 300 people had to be rescued from their vehicles due to the rising waters on the freeway system. And so as was stated there, I'm sure people are aware that Germany and a lot of those countries tend to be a little bit more on the quote unquote progressive side. 
and they tend to put more stake into environmental concerns and things like climate change. And while we definitely do have people here in Detroit who are very ecologically minded, the city hasn't really taken many measures to really try to prepare for these ongoing issues. We had really intense flooding several years ago and similar issues that occur, such as the pump systems for the water sewage system and things like that weren't fully functioning and resulting in a lot of issues with drainage to the point that we still have people who are dealing with the damage from the flooding from a few weeks ago. So for us to have flooding occur just literally a few days ago, people just weren't even done dealing with the damage they were already enduring from previous flooding. So I think it's very clear what regions, me being in Detroit, highly black populated region that has essentially been considered virtually abandoned by this country. In small ways, they try to make appeals, but in, when you live here and you really feel <laughs> what the economic conditions are like, you understand that this place is a place where capital has vacated. You can see that when these climate issues begin to become a more sustained and continuous issue, which places are going to get left behind? And I would like to take this as an opportunity to hopefully maybe be able to engage with some small solutions that people can begin to maybe address in their own regions if these if flooding and things like that become an issue. And one of those things that I wanted to talk about today, just to give a little bit more solutions-oriented space for this type of discussion is rain gardens. So a comrade in BSA and also locally with me is really into the ecological stuff and they sent me some cool resources on the subject of rain gardens. So for those who don't know, a rain garden is a depressed area in the landscape that collects water from roof downspouts, asphalt, or a sump pump discharge and allows it to soak into the ground rather than into storm sewer systems. Less runoff from your home means less channel erosion and fewer sustained solids and pollution in the waterways, which is really good for that reason alone. But another aspect about rain gardens is that they actually have the potential to help reduce the impact of flooding in regions. And if you do it the right way and you figure out a way to really establish one that you can utilize to help mitigate some of the flooding in your area, it'll, you know, do its job. So I was going to give a little brief rundown from what I found, how you can establish one. And some things to keep in mind with rain gardens is that what makes them useful is that while it does collect the water, it's not constantly wet. And so it doesn't become like a pond or a swamp or a marsh wetland type situation. There's no minimum size to it. So that's great. You can kind of make a variety of variations of them in your space if needed or in your, your neighborhood, your community. And because it's not a place where water will pull up, you don't have to worry about things like mosquitoes and such. So that's always very important because they can pass along disease. And yeah, so what you do with them is that, so as I said, rain gardens divert rainwater from directly entering the municipal stormwater system. And because of that, they can also help to reduce the issues with floods. So what you do to get one established basically. So the, the way in which rain gardens can help reduce flooding is like so. So the low-lying rain garden catches the rainwater. The water can't rush into the streets, low areas under train trestles that allow flood or streams that rise above flood stage. The rain garden holds that water long enough that is absorbed and into the garden's ground itself in the soil. The water seeps through the special soil and the sand or gravel layer because you, you make several layers into the subsoil. And from there, the rain will slowly recharge the aquifers, the groundwater, and wells just as it used to do when we had more of a natural landscape and we didn't have so much concrete and asphalt taking up a lot of our flatlands and such. So things to consider before you start a rain garden, you want to make sure you, if you're based in the, the U.S., for instance, you want to 
call the phone number 811, I believe, which would connect to your city centers where they have alerts for local utilities and things. So you let them know that you intend to do some work in the ground. They'll come out, spray paint, let you know where the local lines are and stuff. Because you definitely want to make sure you're not, you know, digging on top of landlines. You know, that's going to turn your garden into a grave very quickly. So you don't want that to happen. And in other countries, I'm not aware, unfortunately, of what options you may have, but you want to do the same thing. Find your local utilities, the people who maintain your local utilities and have them come and locate and identify the locations where the ground lines or whatever systems you may have to be concerned with where they're located so you don't cause any damage that could be, you know, to yourself or to the place where you reside. You definitely want to make sure that as you're placing them, you want them to be like 10 or more feet away from any buildings. You don't want to this water build up to cause any erosion or deterioration to the foundation of a structure. You want to make sure, again, you're looking out for utility lines, septic tanks, wells, things like that. Try to make sure you go into an area that doesn't get super soggy. It's not just like a region, a patch of grass where when it rains, it's always just water just sits on top anyway, but that's not going to be a, a good location. There's probably a lot of clay or things like that that could be causing that water to pool up and you want to avoid those things. Watch out for tree roots and yeah, you want to definitely make sure you, you start out by digging about 18 to 30 inches. Uh, you get to that depth, but you don't want the perimeter of the rain garden to just drop off to that depth. You want to make sure that it recedes into that depth gradually so that the water can flow downstream properly into that and have a nice like saturation of the water across the surface so that it's not just pooling up and really quickly in like the corners of it or you can connect a downspout from like you know your rooftop or whatever to lead towards it but it's not necessary if you plan it out well looking at the the elevation of the ground that you're going to be working on you can also just do so and have the water should run pretty naturally into that because it'll be a depressed region so typically materials involved so yeah, after you dig in the location you want, get that depression going, you want to do like a mixture of garden soil and compost. On top of that, you add sand or gravel. You fill the depression with a mixture to a level about five inches below the natural ground level, and then you plant your vegetation in it. You spread mulch over all to a height ending about two inches below the natural ground level. And the reason for having the mulch below the lip of the depression is to keep it in the garden even. As water fills the depression, usually mulch will float you don't want the mulch to lift up out of the depression to be washed away. So that's very important. Optional things that you could do would be like lining your rain garden with stones and stuff, decorative stones that could probably help with things like water filtration, maybe a little bit too as it goes into the ground. And like I said, you could potentially put some kind of guiding pipes or ducts from the source where the rain will be running down from, but that's also not necessarily something you have to do. And typically with the plants that you want to plant in your rain garden are ones that have nice roots that go deep down into the bed so that there'll be a lot of root systems that can be really absorbent and act as a powerful sponge to absorb a lot of the water and that'll also help to mitigate some of the flooding because you have this natural sponge as well as this depression of land and sand and stuff to act as a filter for the water as it you know returns to the aquifers and stuff and so i think i'm gonna stop there i don't think there's too much more other than getting into the particulars of how you would want to set up your own particular rain garden for aesthetic reasons or for vegetation reasons if you're trying to make sure you have a, a nice permaculture going on or something like that those are things that are a little bit more up to folks like 
what their opinions are on those types of things, what they want to engage in. Uh, and of course, in the show notes, we'll include some notes that link to some pretty useful guides on how to start one, some things you might need to consider for your particular region and your particular property or wherever you may live. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Glenn, for that information being very practical, give, giving our listeners practical tips, <laughs> you know, amongst many to survive the coming eco apocalypse. No, we don't want to be doomers about the situation, but Glenn, thank you so much for that. Yeah, I would say, uh, yeah, no problem. I think it might be important to also note that we're not positioning things as solutions to climate change. Obviously, these are patchwork solutions for your community to hopefully maybe mitigate some of this crisis. But obviously, we need systems change, right? We're not going to really be able to fight climate change by creating small patchwork things like rain gardens and stuff. But it can maybe mitigate some minor to you know more moderate issues that are going to become more and more of a present reality for us as these conditions from climate change exacerbate. So again, we're not offering these as some liberal, you go do it yourself type deal. We understand that this is definitely something that is a part of a broader holistic practice of engaging with the systems that are causing these problems as well, while maybe offering these up as minor patchwork solutions that people can engage with today to help their situations. Absolutely. Yeah. These are just patchwork things that people can help mitigate things that are going to be affecting them in their community. Absolutely. But yeah, I think we want to look at things from a social ecologist perspective in general, right? At first we were talking with Haiti, we were talking about the social issues, right? And now with this, obviously we're talking about the ecological issues, but people must recognize that these things are connected, right? Human beings, our relationships with one another, if they are ones built upon violence, domination, hierarchy, coercive authority, and in such, we're going to replicate that same sort of relationship that we have with one another as human beings with non-human nature and non-human animals, right? And that's what we're seeing with the planet, where we're trying to exploit, we're trying to extract. Overall, well, the exploitation and the extraction is a byproduct of the fact that we somehow foolishly believe that we can dominate non-human nature, which is not a possibility. So now all of the byproducts is the flooding, cold snaps, ridiculous heat waves, erosion and degrading of topsoil. And, you know, we need people to understand that these calamities, climate change is here and still coming. By the year 2030, if climate change trends and processes continue as they have been, we will be globally experiencing a water scarcity crisis. It's also been projected that by the year 2050, we could also be experiencing a crisis of soil degradation, which is going to affect global food supply chains. The food that we do have left that we could still develop and grow will not be as nutrient dense. And all of these things are going to displace people. Water scarcity is going to displace people. The lack of food is going to displace people. We are essentially going to have climate refugees going to whatever sort of societies or countries that still have some sort of resources, they will be flooding to these places for help as they should. And of course, that is going to cause more social and political upheaval and conflict and warfare and such. So people need to take this seriously. I'm not telling everybody in the world to become a fucking organizer, you know, because that shit is difficult, but there has to be a change in our consciousness, our political, social, economic consciousness. And fast, if we're going to survive this, a good trait of being a human being is our capability for cooperation, you know, our levels of rationality and adaptation. And I do believe that we can survive this. We can adapt to this. And like I've been telling people, 
the end is nigh, right? But it doesn't have to be that way. We can't change that. And so eco-despair, eco-anxiety, eco-depression is not needed at this moment. We need non-anxious, non-fearful clarity in order to make decisions. But at the same time, we do need vigilance and we do need militancy at this time because, I mean, the disaster is already here, right? We're seeing infrastructure collapse with the tragedy out in Miami with the condo that was collapsing that they knew was actually collapsing since the 90s in the condo industry out there. Florida in general is flooding, but the condo industry out there has not stopped at all. They're still building condos. So unfortunately, it is a psychological reality that human beings tend to be more short-sighted than long-sighted. But this has to be the time where we have to use our other mental and psychological faculties to really try to draw out, get an aerial view of everything and look at the bigger picture globally. And the reality is that capitalism and the state are destroying the planet. There is no other way of looking at it. It incentivizes all of these destructive techniques and practices that are just killing the world. Well, not killing the world, but harming it in very severe ways and therefore harming us. So, yeah, we have to really start thinking about these things. And now we have to start raising ecological awareness and consciousness now and really start thinking about what are the practical things that we can do to ameliorate in our communities these effects, but at the same time, what system change do we need to engage in on a local level to really try to create some sort of solution to this issue? I mean, in a way, there is no solution because the effects are already ongoing. I do think that we can survive this, you know. Sorry if I'm rambling, but, you know, I'm just trying to really make those connections. I don't know if y'all have any other thoughts. No, I agree with you. I think it's really important to be honest about what, what we're facing, but in the interest of allowing people the opportunity to like really digest it and look at what they can do in their own space. I think, like you both have said very eloquently, it's really about mitigating the outcome of the ramifications and mitigating harm where we can, as we can. We obviously have corporations to thank for a lot of this, the pollution and deforestation that we're facing. And, you know, it's not something that any of us can just fix overnight. So I really think it's important to not become discouraged when your efforts are not on a global scale. I think that is self-defeating when you try to do that. That has been my realization. Maybe my fire has been tempered with age, but I know that Isla Case really can't go out and change the entire world in one lifetime, but I can build a rain garden or I can make my voice heard with the organizations I'm a part of. I can try to raise a person who has not fed into the lie that we are in some way superior or that we stand at the top of a hierarchy within nature. So I do think it's really important that we confront these realities with the allowance that we can't ourselves fix it all right now. Does that make sense? Do y'all know what I'm saying? I, so I do think we, we try to step up to these problems, like I'm going to fix it all. What does that lead to? That leads to disillusionment and that leads to usually quitting. So I think it's good to start small. And to me, a rain garden is not small. As Glenn was explaining, I was Googling it because I've never heard of a rain garden before, but you know, that's something that I can build. I can help with an aquaponics facility. I can try to organize some sort of situation where we're feeding other people. Starting where you can and where you are and looking at what your environment needs that you can realistically contribute to. Yeah, absolutely. And I would also say, like, in conjunction with things like rain gardens and stuff like that, you can also build a food forest or some other type of garden that is, like you said, for cultivating food. So 
getting practice and getting your hands in the soil and being able to find ways to engage with the land in a way where you're utilizing the land as a technology, right? Because it is nature in itself is technology in the same way that we extrapolate all of the technology that we develop. It's, it's all really just like us grappling with reality and the physics that govern the universe and figuring out how to replicate things that we see, systems we see in nature to our benefit on a social level. And even then it's often a crude replication of nature. So a lot of us, I won't say we defer, but we definitely look to indigenous wisdom for ways to rethink our social relations and our relationship with nature. I think it's very important to engage in practices of cultivating the land in a way where it can go back to its natural state in a way, right? A lot of these things with flooding and stuff, obviously, with the conditions being different historically over time for various reasons. Ultimately, when you have a point in history where the land and the soil and all of the non-human nature is in harmony, for lack of a better word, those things are usually just like a, a natural state, right? Like they occur from the different members of the biosphere, just the ways in which they engage with the land, the different creatures, the different fish, the different insects and such. Uh, and then also the natural erosion and movement of the land and the soil and stuff like that, and wind and such. Those things tend to, they can become self-replicating systems. They can become self-managing systems in a lot of ways. And, you know, in the same way that, like, indigenous populations are being tapped for their knowledge with regards to, you know, control fires and stuff as a tool to mitigate climate change and forest fires. A lot of these different ways in which we can be getting our hands on the soil and pushing stone and mud and clay and stuff into forms that, again, just reproducing what we already saw in nature and how those things, the same way beavers make dams and stuff in their way to create different conditions for the rivers and streams and stuff that they engage with, we could be identifying the areas in our communities and our cities and stuff that are impacted by rainfall or snow coverage or whatever, and thinking about real, just grounded environmental solutions that don't require a whole lot of resources, might require a bit of labor, a little bit of human energy going into that. But outside of that, and, you know, upkeep and maintenance, but outside of those things, they can be pretty self-managing and they can be very useful and in conjunction with one another if we begin to engage with all these things from a systems way of thinking like how each one can feed into one another we can have some really powerful tools that won't require a whole lot of using more extractive or industrial tools things that can be more harmful to the environment and they can begin to in very small ways and in incremental steps begin to change the landscape and begin in start the process of healing both the atmosphere, the air, the water systems, and also begin to remediate the soil and get that to a place where we can, again, begin to cultivate more and more ecosystems that will become, in a way, regenerative. So I think that's, in my view, those are things that really are important for us to really be trying to figure out ways of going back but then also thinking about obviously the ways in which we can use the technology that we have today to also engage with these processes in a way where it's not just putting more waste back into the natural system but it can complement natural systems and our own perception so that we can also engage with those things through sensors and readings and stuff 
and just ways of monitoring things so that we can be more proactive as opposed to reactive to the situation of climate change. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's those are all great points. Well, y'all, we're going to wrap this up. Again, thank y'all so much for listening. I know this was a bit of a different episode, but we're trying to mix things up a little bit, y'all. But we really wanted to talk about these pressing issues right now. And again, thank y'all so much for y'all's support. Thank you to everyone who has followed us again on Patreon and who has just been retweeting and liking our stuff since we have dropped. Again, y'all know where to find us. Y'all know where to follow us, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple. Please tell everybody about it. Please keep up the support. Keep up the love as we keep doing what we're doing and pushing forward, y'all. Again, this is not a time for despair. This is a time for focusing on yourself and really looking at what you can do, what you can change around you. They can contribute to helping the world. So again, this has been A Thousand Cuts, a BSA podcast. I'm your host, Demetrius, here with my comrades and co-hosts, Glenn and LaCase. We are signing off and we will see y'all next time. Peace, love, and solidarity. Y'all take care. Peace.